Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. The 2019 vocal judges decided that none of this year's entries, quote, made the grade of the prize awarded to an unpublished manuscript by a writer under 35. And a tempest of commentary on Twitter and in the internet's literary corners followed. One piece in particular caught my eye, a gloomy shade of death, this year's Australian Vogels Literary Award by Alexandra Dane. And Alexandra joins me later in the hour to reflect on the implications of that decision and the nature and purpose of literary awards. And soon, the near and far, a dialogue of authors reaching across the Asia-Pacific, a multifaceted collection of different writing, forms, fiction, non-fiction, poetry and more, all emerged from the writer's immersion and cultural exchange. Joining me to talk about this fascinating book and the program that supported it are collection co-editor and program coordinator Francesca Rendell-Short and contributors Michelle Lee and Rajith Samanadasa. That's all coming up on the show. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. We're uh, going to be talking about a really quite fascinating collection, The Near and the Far. Michelle Lee's Going Down, a satirical play, savaging Melbourne's literary scene and our reductive take on migrant lit while coining the term fastong. Rajith Savanadasa's The Boy Who Knew, a deceptively simple numbered retelling of a 30-panel mural in Uva, Sri Lanka, describing the legend of a boy who mysteriously stopped speaking. Joseph Ipps' Wherever You Are, a poem that reflects and refracts the stories of other writers who have met through the Writers' Immersion and Cultural Exchange program and are all collected in a new work, this work, The Near and the Far, joining me now to talk about this incredible collection of writing of varying genres whose authors have literally spanned the Asia-Pacific are Rajith Savanadasa, Michelle Lee and collection co-editor and co-director of the program that supported it, Francesca Rendell Short. Michelle, Rajith and Francesca, welcome to Backstory. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Great to be here. Now, Francesca, can you elaborate on the program that brings these writers and this collection together? Sure. Um, it's a, I think it's a wonderful program. It's a program that comes out of RMIT and it's a, called Rice, which I rather like. And it's, it's lovely actually having Michelle here because she's got a play called Rice as well, <laughs> except her play is R-I-C-E and this program is W-R-I-C-E. So it stands for Writers, Immersion and Cultural Exchange. And it's a program that's been going for now ooh, maybe six years and it's really all about... Um, exchange, literary exchange and developing literary communities and in this region, in the Asia-Pacific region. And so by that, 
we mean Australia, of course, but then also all these incredible countries um, to our north and east. And we have writers from as far as North Asia, um, South Korea, um, and PNG, but then also India, Indonesia, etc. Um, and then <clears throat> we have Australian writers as well, like Rajith and Michelle. Now, each of the pieces end with a reflection on the program, which is really one of the fascinating characteristics of this book. You very rarely get to sort of have an insight into the writing process when you read a piece, or one that's so explicit at any rate. Uh, Michelle, your play Going Down was staged at the Malthouse last year, and I was fascinated to read about how the exchange helped in the workshopping process. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, um, I was on the 2016 program. Um, so just to add to what Francesca had said, um, different cohorts of writers came together in an exchange each year and that involved going to different places. So I went to China uh, in 2016 and at that time I was working on several things um, and the stage play going down was one of them, which I actually was when we did the, the second part of the exchange in Castlemaine here in Australia, where I really uh, zeroed in on going down. Um, and putting together a, a, a play uh, is maybe more so than other forms of writing because it has another destination beyond just being read, you know, being heard and being performed. Um, it's really vital that you you hear it written, written out so these voices in your head get exposed to um, actual voices Um uh, speaking the words. So I had just some breakthrough moments, I guess, when we we're in cold Castle, Maine, <laughs> um, with you know, big, big picture stuff like the, the arc of the protagonist, Natalie Yang, um, and also some final moments where the, the story kind of rests. And I think in the end, like the most satisfying part, I think, for audiences, the the end where she has a kind of um, a, a moment with her, her mother. So e- even though... Um, in the workshopping, we only looked at extracts of each other's work. We made, you know, an hour per writer across the few days. Um, it was still such a, a rich, um, a rich time, even though it was time limited. And that was partly due to the the curation of people that um, Francesca and the other co-director Dave David brought together. It's really uh, your piece is, and I could say in particular, but I think all of the pieces are reflective of this, really does kind of, uh, you know, dwell in that sort of intersectional space and doesn't come up with easy answers and does all the things that you really want from uh, Australian literature and uh, obviously uh, performances in this case as well. Uh, And, you know, it's hilarious to boot and uh, I'll I'll just leave that fast dong thing hanging out there (laughs) so people actually pick up. There's so much to love uh, in this and a lot of the other pieces Um, but I really do want to pick up on some of that uh, the the kind of real liminal space that a lot of these pieces sit in and in fact that culture does sit in uh, when we quite often try and find these these awkward binaries in it Uh, I do want to talk now uh, with you Radith because I think it's a great place to pick up some of these ideas Mm -hmm. in the reflection at the end of your piece the boy who knew you say that when you were on exchange in Yogyakarta, you just come out of a Teju Cole and John Berger binge and had become preoccupied by how most of the images we are exposed to in Australia and across Asia are dominated by the US. This kind of cultural ricochet, ricochet led your piece um, to 
be riffing off the idea of how monuments are considered in Sri Lanka. Mm -hmm. Uh, Can you talk about this process a little? Sure. Um, I'd come off uh, writing after my first novel, Ruins, which um, did relatively well, but a lot of the questions that I got, especially from the public over here, was um, why so many foreign words or, you know, should there be a glossary? Um, And I found that a little bit, you know, a bit perturbing. And and being a bit of a petty and mean-spirited sort of person, I decided I would write a novel where I completely, I kind of start off with very classical sort of, uh, a classical style and then completely go in the other direction and subvert the language, the especially the, like, the ling- work on the linguistic aspects of it and really turn out a hybrid piece. Um, but then I also got to thinking about imagery because I feel like it's not just the language, but the way we look at the world changes quite a bit as well. And I think there's there's an effect of being fed all this Im- these images from... Um, the West that, you know, and I feel like they're linked to quite a lot of the issues that we face now, like the refugee problem or things with migrants and the way we see them affects how we treat people. And um, those are the sorts of things that I wanted to kind of explore through this process. And it kind of took me all the way back into history. um, And I wondered whether we were looking at our own pieces of art, um, the, the way we should be or the way those artists meant them to be seen. And also this idea of like, you know, the kind of American cultural output being an international output, but no one else's cultural output Mm. sort of being considered in that same way is really unpacked in some of this. I guess this is really something that I'd like to ask all of you. I'm thinking about Han Yuju's piece and how that kind of, you know, really deconstructs. It deconstructs itself, but in a wonderful structure. I really enjoyed how that was put together. But also, you know, plays with language and second languages and how you can talk about things in a second language that you can't or second or third language mm-hmm. that you can't maybe talk about in your you know in your kind of language of origin or your your mother tongue as we sometimes refer to it um so how do you feel as though the pieces your pieces the ones that you've been exposed to in in this book as well really engage with that sort of idea of cultural slippage can can i start off by saying that um language and the the question of of tongue came up all the time in mm. all of the exchanges. So we've had um, five or six exchanges. So Michelle was in China and Rajith was in Indonesia. And um, that question of how we communicate to each other across the table, that was one big thing. And then how we share our work across the table. And it was very exciting for the Indonesian residency because we actually had a translator who was also around the table and able to translate um, some of Dickie Sender's work, which was really fantastic. And we had um, Yuju um, around the table as well, mm-hmm. sort of reading in Korean, but also reading in um, in English, in a translated English. So yeah, there's this there's this sort of liminal space there as well. You know, we were in a liminal space, being sort of um, away from home, um, but together. And then in, with with language as well. And there's a lot of play in language, as you see in this work, but then in our conversation as well. And what was great about Yuju is that. She was very. She was almost apologetic about her her English, but then she and she would sort of highlight those limitations, but then use them in a way that, you know, a, a regular native English speaker wouldn't. So she would write in English, but and then just be really clear that she's not as good as anyone else. But she'd 
So funny though. Yeah, she was, yeah, playing, she was she really, was really funny. playing with that yes. though. I yeah. felt yeah. so because, and then masterfully using yes, it in yes, these it ways. It was really beautiful. Yeah, yeah which is a, a really interesting question because mm. there's a lot of uh, quite notable writers for whom um, English was not their first language, and I think that that you know the idea of translation is obviously a really interesting one as well. And there's um, some really wonderful examples like um, uh, Norman Erickson um, Passa. Pasaribu. Mm. I think that was one of the translated pieces. Of that, yes, it correct? was. Yes, and and again, that was you know that's a relationship um, between that person and their mm. translator as well, which mm. was a really fascinating thing. But again, it's a it's a really interesting space to dwell in. Mm, I, I mean, thinking about cultural slippage, I, I guess what we have in common, the the writers in the collection, is it's kind of going back to what Rajit said for some of the inspiration for his piece. I mean, there is a, a, a cultural dominance in terms of like what's considered like an international um, understood cultural output. And I'd say what we have in common is that because of who we are as writers and as people, we already kind of sit towards the margins of that. And there's not a fixedness to the way that we experience the world. And I think that really comes out in the way we see things, the things that we want to play with, how we express and how we think. Um, and putting it together in one collection, I think that makes it really stark. Absolutely. Uh, if you've just joined us and you're wondering what this conversation is about, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. We're discussing The Near and The Far, which is a collection of stories uh, that really span the Asia-Pacific through a program that we are referring to as RICE, uh, which is a cultural uh, writers' exchange and cultural immersion program. And joining me to talk about it are Francesca Randall-Short, who is the co-editor of this collection and uh, the co-director of the program as well as uh, authors Michelle Lee and Rajith Savanadasa. I, I really do want to talk about um, there's a, a wonderful poem that I, I mentioned at the start uh, of this piece in our introduction. Uh, it's Wherever You Are by Joseph Ip and it's a really wonderful... Joshua. Joshua, Joshua Ip. Ip. Sorry, Joshua Ip. Jo- yeah. Joseph, apologies. Yeah. Joshua Ip. Um, one of the wonderful things about this poem is that it, it kind of it is Joshua's kind of reflection on how mm. they experienced the the conversations that were had, the workshopping that went on, and then turning that into you know a piece of art mm. in and of itself. So he calls them his digestives, and what he does is actually in performance, which he did with us um, in Indonesia, or in this case, looking at the at the book, he listens deeply. It's the most extraordinary skill. He listens so deeply and such in a, such a concentrated way as people are speaking or reading, or as he's reading the work, and then he sort of regurgitates, if you like, mm. that work into into what we've got in the in the book. So we gave him the manuscript right at the end when everyone had had submitted their work, and then he produced that work really quickly as well. But Rajith, we experienced it in Jogjakarta, in real time. didn't we? Yes, he, he actually does it. So if you're in a panel with five other writers and each one of us have gone through a, a certain personal topic, for example, you know, what, whatever I talked about, um, Joshua would speak at the end or he would read at the end and he would have created a poem with, with each, like touching on each of those elements and it would just cohere and flow together perfectly. So it's pretty incredible. Um, and it's such a work. gift, isn't it? Yeah, because yes, you yeah. hear your work yeah. spoken back to you. Yes. Um, in this very, um, in this, in this very distilled 
perfectly formed form mm. and you think, mm. yes, that's the essence of it. Almost, mm. almost better than you could put it, right? <laughs> well, I think too, um, I mean, I experienced that when we did a, a panel in Melbourne Writers' Festival mm. and at the end he, you know, in a way, it came together to conclude what we'd said. And I think for people who were there present listening, it it's just another layer of mm. how you digest and take away what you've heard. So, I, I mean, I really enjoyed it from that aspect from the point of view of the, the listener, that he had another element to mm. how I listened and how I understood things. That was beautiful at the Melbourne Writers' Festival, wasn't it? Because it was a way of repeating elements yeah. that had come up through the conversation. Yes. Yeah. Because it's such giving rich, it back there's to so much us. that you know, so much has been, has been thought and said, and like it's a very interesting form. I haven't really seen that many people do do something like this. Mm. Like it requires the, the the presence and the listening, mm. but also you know being able to. Uh, express yourself imaginatively. Yeah, because it's more than a summary, isn't it? It's, it's sort more, of a, yeah, yeah it's, it becomes a, its own thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's yeah. a it's a conversation piece. So yes. Digestive is an interesting term. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's sort of I, I thought it was a lovely distillation of some of the themes of the piece mm. uh, as well, because what you're really trying to do there is to show, you know, how like all of these um, people, these writers, ideas, themes, cultures are interconnected, and I think quite often that's uh, that's not something that's so explicitly achieved as in a distillation work like that. Mm. Well, I think as a collection, I mean, there's just so much to love about this collection. I mean, one of the things is scribe publications who have sort of um, produced the work and affirm for us, all of us, um, what we're doing in this space, which is really fantastic. But then in the forward, we've got Maxine Benneber-Clark, who was one of our first fellows who went with us to Penang and Singapore. And she writes about the program at the beginning. And then you've got this just this beautiful yeah. array of something like 26 or 27 writers. A lot of the work which we've heard around the table, around the um, residency workshop table, but then new work as well. Mm. It's, it's, it's very beautiful. Mm. So I, I do want to sort of uh, talk at this point just uh, to maybe leave the discussion on about this idea of how we talk about culture in Australia and you know I feel as though there is a great effort now being made to sort of you know be a little bit broader in in you know literary sort of life and publications and who is who is a part of that who who kind of joins in those those conversations and has access but it's still really at that stage of being quite clunky and sometimes tineered and I feel like, um, Michelle, you in particular are quite, you know, excoriating <laughs> in your piece about the, about how, um, you know, our literary establishment sort of deals mm. with this. I mean, so often these are quite well-meant um, forays into, uh, you know, into multiculturalism. Mm. But can you talk a bit about mm. that in the context of maybe this book but also more broadly? Yeah, how... well, I, I hope we're at a juncture of change. Like I think a lot of the... The things that we understand to be good writing or the kind of boxes that are put on writers of colour in terms of what's expected of them, like that's, you know, historically been about who's kind of making the decisions and I, I feel like that, hope that's changing, that there'll be, you know, more people of colour, more diverse people programming at festivals and in our big institutions and then that would naturally, I, I expect, would then let, lend itself to just more su- surprises and more refreshing kind of writing from um, w- with audiences and what we expect from writers who are, I guess, not, not white and male. And, I mean, just to plug the book, I think as a starting point, um, reading the authors in there, particularly those authors who aren't based in Australia as an access point to their work and then reading more of their work. 
And also we had interesting had Andy Butler who works in the administration space as well. And so there were we had all these conversations around, you know, as writers of colour, you know, it's it's not just about us getting the voice, but um you know, he and he and he speaks about this really well, um, about how we need to be represented in the, the other areas as well, in, in art, arts administration, for example. Yes. You know, and, and I think that's where the tinniedness or the clunkiness comes in, mm. is when there is that, um, that gap um, between you know, what, what the people up in the, in, in the man- management want versus what's being produced. So, yeah. Getting the cultural complexity really right at the root of mm. everything. Yes. Mm. Francesca, is that sort of something that you are observing happening, uh, maybe even through the alumni of the program? Um, I mean, having having the alumni is quite incredible now because there's something like 50 writers who have been part of this program and that in itself is is a network, is a dynamic mm-hmm. network that I think is um, is challenging and contributing to these debates and pushing it forwards, you know, upwards, outwards. Um, but then, you know, to have that contribution, say, of Andy Butler, who's got a piece in this in this book, who comes from a Filipino Australian heritage, and who really challenges it, you know, the the way um, the the way the arts in Australia um, are run and managed and conceived of, I suppose, mm. and wants to turn that upside down and think completely differently about it so that it's not, you know, it's it's the big question about diversity and inclusion, you know, mm. d- diversity from what, you know, mm. you know, where's the centre, you know, and mm. actually imploding that idea of what the centre is, yes. like not thinking that the centre is always white, like mm. why is that? And um, actually thinking differently and even those words which I use all the time and in my work at RMIT we often talk often Mm. talk about inclusion and diversity which are really important but it just begs that question what the normative you know often the heteronormative spaces are that actually define Mm. the centre and that that's what I think a program like this wants to explode. Well, uh, I feel as though we need much more than uh, half of an hour-long show to talk about this. But, uh, you know, uh, sadly, this is all the time we have right now. Thank I, you. I would love to explore some of these ideas more and, uh, you know, hopefully have a chance to discuss that with all of you. Uh, thank you so much uh, for joining me today, uh, Rajith, uh, Savannah Dasa, Michelle Lee and uh, Francesca Rendell-Short. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks thank so you. much. So that was a discussion uh, about the near and the far, uh, an amazing collection of work that I very definitely suggest that you get your hands on. It's out now through Scribe. Uh, Coming up next, uh, we have a bit of a discussion uh, about the decision by this year's Australian Vogel Literary Award to not award a prize. It led to uh, quite a robust uh, argument around the literary community about the the nature of prizes and what they are there for and joining me to discuss that and her piece A Gloomy Shade of Death which was some months ago published in uh, The Lifted Brow is Alexander Alexandra Dane Triple R on FM digital online and via the app You're listening to Backstory on Triple R Now, when the 2019 Vogel Awards judges decided that none of this year's entries, quote, made the grade, it sparked a conversation about prizes and what they mean. One piece in particular caught my eye, a gloomy shade of death. 
This year's Australian Vogels Literary Award by Alexandra Dane, published in The Lifted Brow. Alexandra joins me now to talk about her reflection on the decision and the nature and purpose of literary awards. Alexandra Dane, welcome to Backstory. Thanks for having me. Now, this is look. It's a. It was a an issue that I think many people in the literary community are aware of, and certainly was uh, quite robustly covered by quite a number of people. But your piece in particular caught my eye because I think you really did summarise a lot of the discussions that were going on. So maybe let's start there with uh, how you came to write this particular piece. Um, I do a lot of research in my work about literary prizes and their sort of position in Australia's literary community and the field. And so I have um, a lot of opinions about literary prizes and unpublished literary prize, um, prizes for unpublished manuscripts, which is what the Vogel is, um, they're a particular, a particularly interesting part of the discussion. The purpose of this prize is to, um, it awards one unpublished manuscript, an unpublished author under the age of 35. They get $20,000, a publishing contract with Alan and Unwin and um, an advance on royalties. And that's a pretty um, exciting prospect for many authors. Um, So to not award the prize and sort of declare that no submission was um, up to the standard of the prize and to preserve sort of the integrity of the past winners um, was quite surprising to me and I also thought quite disappointing. Uh, The authors who enter this prize do a lot of work. Um, The authors who are shortlisted for the prize often have opportunities to kind of get their work out there as well and they get sort of feedback and not having any of that for any of the authors seemed um, quite unfair to me. Um, But within the sort of ecosystem of literary prizes more generally, uh, it raised a lot of questions about why we have literary prizes and what value they bring to the literary field and um, whether or not we should, this is a way that we should be judging literary quality or in fact we can judge literary quality. Um, In my opinion and based on my research, I sort of think that they, well they do, they award a very small group of people and a very small group of publishers with often quite huge amounts of money um, and then leave everybody else without that. And that kind of creates a sort of um, inequality in the field, especially if we look at the history of awards in Australia where they're um, very white and uh, often male-dominated. You're seeing different prizes coming up to address that balance, but um, they are kind of awarding the same authors and the same type of authors and the same type of stories again and again, which sort of doesn't really create a lot of equality in the field. Yeah, and it does really beg the question about this idea of merit, like what in fact does that mean and what, particularly with an unpublished manuscript, which Mm. is an unwritten script in a sense, Mm. that you get to shift and change what we think of as benchmark quality. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm kind of uh, tempted to sort of reflect on, say, um, some London review of books, uh, uh, you know, discussion or essay back in the 60s about whether or not, you know, writers of a particular cultural persuasion, which I won't necessarily mention, um, could be considered literary, um, which now, frankly, would be considered appalling, Mm. to say the very least, but was a genuine discussion. Similarly, 
we've had conversations about whether or not women's writing was in fact literary, which is a deep irony um, when you <laughs> think about the fact that our peak literary awards were literally named after a female writer, mm-hmm. but for years then weren't uh, handed over to any writers of that gender. Uh, so I think that what we really need to reflect on as well is that prizes like anything else reflect cultural norms and as those shift and change, so too should prizes. But I think your your discussion, as you've just touched on, really reaches more deeply into the roots of, of, the, of a class or a monetary inequity as well. Mm. I, I do want to talk a bit more about that because that is sort of where you end um, your discussion um, on is like what are we really talking about here? So, so you've sort of introduced that topic. I'm wondering, and this maybe is a little bit of a, uh, a naughty thing to do here, but what do you think we could better use that sort of money for? This is an area that you're, you're obviously thinking quite a lot about. Um, I suppose it depends. Not, not all prizes are the same. I think it depends on what the prizes are and who's paying for them. Um, Miles Franklin, Franklin left a bequest for a prize to be set up in her name. That is a private sort of chunk of money. Um, who am I to say what Miles Franklin should and should not do with her money? But we also have um, very wealthy, um, highly funded state and uh, government literary prizes. So state sort of premier's literary awards and a prime minister's literary award. And it's really great for us to celebrate the literary achievements of Australians. That's an exciting thing to do. It's nice to all get together and toast sort of authors and publishers. But if we're spending hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars on the prize money, that doesn't even kind of come into the cost of the prize for in terms of administration of a prize, which is also very high. Could that money be best spent on multiple literary grants, say, for much more, a higher number of authors, say, rather than just awarding very few individuals um, with hundreds of thousands of dollars? Um, I'm not a prize winner, but if someone offered me $100,000, I I wouldn't turn it down. But, you know, I just don't know if it's the best use of um, state and federal funding um, for the arts. It's a really interesting question as well. Um, and and to go back to the, um, I guess, this idea of how best to use the money, um, you know, the Willis Centre's next chapter awards try to address some of the issues uh, with these one-off prizes mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, maybe aren't really supporting all the stages of a writer's career. So mm-hmm. to say you'll need mentorship uh, and, you know, some help to actually get things, not just to publication, but to create a career, mm-hmm. a career that might actually pay the bills and um, but at the same time lift up particular voices. We might also criticise some of the, the ways in which um, the decisions are then made um, because it is difficult then when you come up with a set of criteria to then you know, select them without making some kind of a uh, inadvertent sort of blunder or to, to kind of go down a path that doesn't necessarily end up achieving your end. Is that something that you sort of looked into a little bit? Yeah, it's... Um... This is why this is a difficult conversation because um, rewarding people for their work is a really important thing to do. Guidelines for prizes are inherently um, sort of exclusive. They are designed to to sort of cut down the number of entries and kind of ring fence what we're going to be awarding. So uh, the Miles is a good example. They reward the best Australian writing on the sort of Australian experience, the Australian life in any of its phases is their kind of criteria. The Stella Prize is for women and non-binary writers um, who are women identifying. And um, and the State Prize is a sort of, 
you know, different in their own kind of ways, depending on whether they're for people in that state or, or for all Australians. And the Wheeler Centre have sort of other different prizes for different groups and kind of about representing different groups or bringing up different groups of people, if different authors. And that's a good thing. So it's hard to argue against it. <laughs> well, but it's also a case of sort of looking at when that job has, you know, has been done or is now being picked up by other prizes to mm-hmm. renegotiate or to consider mm. the cultural shifts and then question whether or not the premise that a particular prize has been set on is still relevant. Um, you know, obviously the Vogel also came under fire for, you know, supposed ageism. Mm. Um, but it was, you know, again, maybe started at a time when, you know, you didn't have as much access uh, for younger unpublished published authors. So that is still sometimes a consideration when you're looking at offering access. I do sort of want to uh, end this discussion on on one of the another kind of um, prize giving that was perhaps considered out of the norm. Uh, although we are talking about a non-prize giving, um, which was the uh, Bear is the award of uh, the Victorian Premier's Award, both uh, that the not the non-fiction award and the overall award to Beru's Buchani's book, uh, which was widely considered to be uh, of literary merit and all of those other things about things that are of relevance mm. um, in the Australian cultural context. But the criteria which I've, I've looked at really specifically say that it's for a Victorian writer. And I thought this was a really interesting and quite radical approach uh, to interpreting uh, criteria and guidelines and standards, I guess, that really pushed the boundary mm. of that uh, in a way that many lauded and I, I would laud absolutely, um, but again really raises the question, uh, you know, in contrast to, say, the Vogel decision. Mm. And I think that you raise a really good point about um, guidelines and what they mean and maybe we should be kind of constantly looking at the shifting kind of uh, space that these prizes occupy. Um, the Victorian Literary um Premier's Literary Award, just shifted their guidelines because they thought it was really important. I don't know, I'm not in their heads, but to me they thought it was really important to recognise this work. Um, So the guidelines were shifted. You didn't have to be an Australian resident or citizen in this circumstance because this work is extremely important and should be rewarded and should be promoted through the prize. And that was a great decision. Um, Other prizes didn't sort of take that that opportunity to shift their guidelines and that's, that's their their choice and that's fine um but it was a really interesting and i think important example of the way that guidelines are very restrictive they do act to keep some people in and some people out of the conversation and we can change them if we want we we the prize administrators the prize administrators can change the rules to they're not laws you know they can they can shift the sort of boundaries in order to kind of really be self-aware of their own practice and one thing I should say, many um, of the prizes and the prize judges will often do the work for not terribly much money themselves. It's tireless, yeah. They, absolutely. They are very much well-meaning and are doing this as, you know, as peers of many of the authors that they're judging mm-hmm. or as themselves previous award winners. So it really is uh, a kind of many in many cases a peer sort of, you know, recognition, which is as that group changes, so too Will the application of these things change? I think so, yeah. It, and that's one of the great things about the prizes, but also one of the things that can hold them back, where the peri- previous winners become the judges who then judge sort of in their own image and it can kind of become a self-perpetuating cycle, but hopefully not. 
Well, we, uh, I very much um, would love to talk more to you about this, Alexandra Dane. I think uh, it is something that I've reflected on quite a bit and I think many people in the literary community have. But thank you so much uh, for so, um, you know, so brilliantly sort of summarising some of the issues that were raised by that decision. Thank you. So that's kind of pretty much uh, all we have time for today on Backstory. Uh, I really enjoyed today's discussions. They were thought-provoking and really I just don't nearly have enough time to um, to keep on uh, you know, going with them as much as I would like to. Uh, I would like to thank all my guests uh, for today's show. Um, Alexandra Dane, who you just heard uh, speaking about A Gloomy Shade of Death, this year's Australian Vogels Literary Award, which is... Uh, published in The Lifted Brow. Uh, It was uh, published back in May but is still very much available online and I would direct you to go and read it. It has a lot of links to a lot of the other published articles at the time and much to think about as well. I'd also like to thank my earlier guests uh, who were all uh, coming in to discuss the collection The Near and The Far, a collection out now through Scribe which uh, is uh, stories that's spanning the Asia-Pacific region and uh, looking at... um, program alumni from the uh, Writers Immersion and Cultural Exchange program and I spoke with uh, Francesca Rendell Short, Rajith Saranavasta and Michelle Lee Independently yours, Triple R 102.7 Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.